On July 7th, 2006, I made this vow. I, Matt, take you, Cheryl, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance, and there to you I pledge myself. Shortly after I made this vow, we proceeded to sign a legal document that bound us into marital matrimony before God and the state of Colorado. And by God's grace, for the last 11 years, I have kept those vows. And by God's grace, I will continue to keep those vows until death does us part. But here's the thing. As you reflect on your wedding vows, for those of you that are married, you realize that you have not perfectly kept those vows. Because to to vow that you will love and to cherish someone... You recognize that there's days you're not loving and cherishing your spouse. Am I right? There are days that I know that I am the recipient of my wife's incredible grace and patience with me as I'm still in process of learning and growing in how to love and cherish her, how Jesus would call me to love and cherish her. And I was thinking that this is much like the Christian life. When we put our faith in Christ and we make this declaration, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you lead, wherever you take me. I'm going to follow you. And we make this vow to follow God. Only short after to realize that we continue to fall short of a genuine, joy-filled obedience to what God's word tells us life should look like as followers of Jesus. Well, we're getting to the end of our Old Testament study through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's been just a fun journey seeing all the correlations uh, between, again, the Old and New Testament, showing that the Bible is is one story centered on one person, Jesus Christ, with one message. It's all about the salvation that God brings to his people. From Old to New Testament, it's it's one storyline. And here in Ezra and Nehemiah, it's really the, the closing chapter of the Old Testament before Jesus hits the scene. And the people of Israel have been in exile. They've been in a foreign nation for 70 years. And now by a mighty act of God, he's brought them back into the promised land. They've rebuilt the temple that was destroyed. They've reestablished God's word as really the lifeblood of the culture. And they rebuilt the walls that had been broken down and left in shambles. And so now uh, they are established once again as a people. The physical labor of rebuilding what they needed to rebuild is done, but the spiritual renewal continues. And last week as we looked at chapters 9 and 10, we saw how the people of Israel recognized their, their guilt before a perfect and holy God. They, they knew, man, we have failed to live up to God's standards over and over and over again. But that didn't defeat them. It actually motivated them to make a covenant because they saw, man, if God is so committed to his people, if he is so gracious and so merciful, we're following him. If someone's committed to me like that, I'm going to be committed to him. And so they make this vow in writing to follow God's law, to obey, obey all of his commands. It's just significant for us to realize that the people made this covenant, they made this vow out of a heart of gratitude for God's patience. 
They were in awe of God's character and who he was and how he, he, he just, he bared with them as they continued to rebel against him. And this week we're going to look at the actual specific details of this covenant that they made in writing. All the leaders, all the people signed their names on this document saying, we will do this. And we're going to look at the details of that. We're going to see them dedicate this newly rebuilt wall. And then we're going to see them uh, pledge their devotion to supporting and sustaining the house of God. So we're going to be going through chapters 10 through 12 this morning. And I'm not going to read every single verse But what I want to encourage each of you to do is to go home and to read those chapters in their entirety. And and just to really take some time later today to soak in that. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, there's black Bibles in the pew back in front of you. That's our gift to you. Just go ahead and take that with you. And uh, it's yours to keep. So, But write your name in it because if you bring it back, you might lose it, right? Okay, you following me? All right, so here's a big idea. What I want us to walk away with today is that this, is that Jesus is in the business of using ordinary people who are committed to living for him to build his church. He uses ordinary people, everyday people, who are committed to him to build his church. And by the end, you'll see the connection. So first of all, let's dive into Nehemiah 10. We're going to start in verse 28, read the first 28 and 29 here. And look at the details of the covenant that they made in writing. It says this, verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the Lord, their God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in the commandments of the Lord our the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Okay, so right off the bat, what the people are doing is they're committing to following what God has outlined in the Old Testament Torah. That's the first five books of the Old Testament that came through Moses. God spoke directly to Moses, and he wrote down all that God wanted to to say to govern his people. And so what they've done is two things. They've turned away from the foreign influence around them, the surrounding cultures, and they've turned to God. They've said, okay, we're no longer going to intermix our faith and be influenced by the pagan influence, but we're going to turn to God and be devoted to him and him alone. And his word is going to be our guide. That's how we're going to be set apart. And this is serious business because I don't know if you caught it or not, but they they're saying that any violation in their part, any any breach of contract, if you will, they make an oath and they say, if we don't fulfill our oath, we embrace the curse that accompanies that. I think that's pretty serious. <laughs> You're saying, all right, I promise to do this, and if I don't, may, may God's curse fall on me. That's pretty intense. This is a pretty serious moment that they're saying, we will follow God. We will obey his word. And here's the deal, is that they are vowing to orient their entire lives around God. What this means, the Old Testament outlines for them days of the week they take off, outlines for them the holidays they observe, it outlines for them the vacations they take, what the work week looks like, and how their finances are handled. God's word instructs them in all this. So it's not like they're like, okay, I run my own life. It's no, God's word runs my life. And they're saying, we're going to allow him to do that. We are committed for that to be our reality. 
And while they're committed to observe the entire Old Testament, that's what they're saying is God's word is our guide. There are three specific ways that we see in our text today. So the first one is interfaith marriage. Verse 30. It says, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And so if you were here a few weeks back, we talked about how God is not opposed to interracial marriage. God's people are of every tribe, tongue, and nation on this entire planet. But God is opposed to interfaith marriage. But here's the deal. is is many people in our world today find themselves in a situation where one spouse is a believer and the other spouse is not. And so what do you do in that situation? How are we supposed to respond? What would God's word have to say? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 13. He says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. What this is telling us is that the believing spouse should love their spouse sacrificially should pray for them continually and stay committed to them faithfully as long as they are willing to stay in that marriage. And again, the main emphasis in the text today is this idea is that you should not go into marriage knowing that another person is not a follower of Christ if you claim to be a follower of Christ. The people separated themselves from the pagan influences. And the, the Bible uses the term equally or unequally yoked. And it's this idea that, that you, are, you are uniting yourself with another person. And if your pathway is to pursue God and their pathway is not, you're going to constantly be pulling each other in opposite directions. There's going to be constant tension because you're going to be living primarily for, for different end games, for different goals. And that's why scripture says just, hey, if you can, don't even get into that situation. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be hard. There will be challenges. All right, so the one is interfaith marriage. The second one, verse 31. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grains on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So one of God's blessings to his people and that we are wise to observe and embrace is this idea of a healthy work-rest balance. God actually prescribes in his word that you work six days and one day a week you don't work. Now, the, the Bible says that the fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Sabbath translates literally to mean the word cease or to stop. And in the Old Testament, it was observed Friday night through Saturday. And they would cease from all the normal activities of life. All the normal business of the work week stopped on that day. And it was devoted to worshiping God and to acknowledging that God is the one that gives us the ability to work anyway. Everything we have, our life, our breath, our abilities is from him. Let's pause and acknowledge that for one day a week. We got six days we can work. Let's, let's set aside one. And that was God's command. He commanded his people to rest. It's pretty cool. And next came a Sabbath year rest for the land itself. And this one probably struck me the most, but every seventh year, what they would do is they wouldn't, they wouldn't plant any any seed they wouldn't uh, till their fields they wouldn't harvest their crop they would let it lie 
Who wants one year every seven years just to have off? Anybody? Sounds awesome. That was the primary work of a lot of these people is to work the field. And so it's basically a, a, a one-year sabbatical from your normal work every seven years. And then lastly, in that same year that they would forgive any outstanding debt that they had uh, had against a fellow Jew. So anything that you were owed from a, a fellow Jew was, was now null and void. They didn't owe you anything. And here's what struck me so uh, profoundly about these commands specifically is that this required the Israelites in the Old Testament to exercise faith. When you look at what they're doing, it required faith. Think of taking a day off. You know the endless to-do list in the back of your mind at all times, right? You know there's always work to be done. And God says, put that aside for a day. That takes faith. Think of every seventh year, how you would have to trust in God's promises to provide that you have enough food to sustain you that year. And your trust was in his promises. Leviticus 25, 21 through 22 says this. It says, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce crops sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crops arrive. Think about that. You're going out planting in the sixth year, trusting that God's going to reap such a bumper crop that you'll have food to sustain just your everyday life needs for three years. How many of you would be tempted like me to like, you know, walk around your fields with some seed in your pocket and uh, just be like, you know, throw a little bit on the ground and like, well, I'm not really doing work, but you know, we'll see if that grows. And then, uh, I'll come walk through the field and see if I can't, you know, Oh, there's a food. I guess I'll eat it. It'd be tempting, right? What do you mean? You're going to provide enough in year six to, to cover for three years. That's amazing. Finally, and maybe even the most challenging is the last one is the forgiving of debt. So you have a friend or somebody in the community who who's, who has no money and you have extra money. You're able to loan them money. And your seven rolls around. It's like, okay, I don't owe you anything anymore. It kind of makes you want to borrow a lot of money from fellow people in the day, right? That's, that wasn't the heart or the intent. But anyway, it required faith. It required faith to say, hey, all right, I gave to you. God is 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 telling me that I'm I'm not going to require that payment back. And it's a trust that God's going to provide still everything I need even though I've helped somebody else. Even in the Old Testament law, it is crystal clear to me that to obey and observe requires faith. This required faith and that's always been God's desire of his people to ask them to trust him that his ways are better that he knows better than we do. Lastly, the people commit to supporting the temple ministry, verses 32 through 38. 
They say this, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks and to bring the first of our dough, that's uh, like you know, bread dough, not cash dough, just clarification, of our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithe from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithe in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithe. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse for the people of Israel. And the sons of Levi shall bring the contributions of grain, wine, oil to the chamber where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. The people are obligating themselves to support the work of God in all the ways he has lined out for them to support the work of God according to the Old Testament law. There are two concepts that I feel like are significant to point out uh, and have some relevance to us today, but not direct uh, connections. These two concepts are first fruits and tithes. First fruits and tithes. And so this idea of first fruits, I recently heard uh, a Tim Keller message talking about generosity in scarcity, and he illuminated this topic of first fruits for me in a way that I was just challenged and convicted, and it was so good. And basically what he said was this, is that to give of your first fruits was to give of the first, the first food that started showing up on your trees, okay? So put yourself in the mind of this culture, that's your livelihood, That's how you survive. And you're giving the first bounty of the crop that's coming off of the plants. And here's the thing. You have no clue what the total harvest will be. You have no clue at the end of the harvest how much you will have. But you are giving first before taking any of that for your own livelihood. To me, that's absolutely amazing. I think it would be kind of like someone who has a commission-based job saying, I'm going to give X amount this year, not knowing how much I'm going to make this year. Can you imagine that? You, you, and you give it right off the top, the first thing. It's like, all right, God, this is what I'm, I'm praying, I'm trusting you're going to provide. And I'm just going to, I'm going to give before I even know the, the total that you're going to bring in to support my livelihood. That's amazing to me, this first fruits concept. It's amazing. Second is a concept of the tithe. So the tithe literally translates as tenth or one tenth, okay? 
So one-tenth of everything that they had went to support the work of the Lord. And this would obviously require the faith that you'd be able to live off of nine-tenths. I will be able to live off 90% of everything that comes in because God has asked me to give of 10%. But here's the interesting thing. If you do a little bit of your homework in the Old Testament law, you realize it's actually not 10%. There were three primary tithes of the Old Testament. It was the Levitical tithe, the annual festival tithe, and the triannual poor tithe. And between these three tithes, Israelites were giving upwards of 23%. Now, they weren't socialist. Okay? Many of you might have gone there. Sounds socialist. 23%. That's crazy tax rate. That's not the heart. That's not the intent. That's not what's going on here. It's just saying, man, like, this required faith to give almost a quarter of everything that was coming in to support the work of God. That's faith that, man, God, you're going to provide abundantly as we trust you. As we acknowledge through everything you've given us as a gift from your hand. That's amazing. And for the New Testament Christian, here's the thing. The Bible doesn't demand a percentage of your tithe. And I think the reason it does that is because God isn't concerned about the percentage. He's concerned about your heart. He wants to know if you really trust him. If you really trust that he's going to provide for everything that you need. And, and the way our giving works is that it reflects faith. And that's why when you look at scripture, the principles around giving, it's only principles. It's not laws of this is exactly how much you give and when. It's principles. It sh- and the first principle is that it should require faith. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. That applies to everything in our lives. Anything we're, we're doing that doesn't bring faith to the table isn't trusting in God. Another principle is that it should be joyful. We should say, hey, God is allowing me to contribute to seeing the good news of the gospel and the ministry of his church advance. What else would I want to invest in? This is the only eternal investment I can make. This is amazing. And lastly, giving sacrificially. Giving in a way that that stretches you, that you say, All right, I might have to say no to some things that might be nice, but they're not needs. I might have to forego some things that might be comforts in my life, but I don't need them. Because God's kingdom is more important than my comforts. And that's the heart. And I hope you hear that, that the heart of giving to any local church is faith. And here's the deal. The percentage is not the point. The percentage is not the point. God desires a deeper trust-love relationship with us. And there's nothing that reveals that more in our lives than the way we view our money. Jesus said it. Jesus talked about money actually more than he talked about heaven or hell combined. I know like we get squirrely talking about money in church. But that's what Jesus said. Hey, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. If you're consumed with this world and building your kingdom here, man, you're going to miss out on building my kingdom and living for something that's going to last for eternity. And here's the other deal is that sacrificial giving protects our hearts 
from the idol that money can so easily become. Guys, money is the biggest idol in our culture. Is it not? Can I get an amen? Does anyone agree with me on that? It's huge. Our culture is all about, let's, let's build our kingdom, let's acquire wealth, let's have the latest and greatest. But our sacrificial giving protects our hearts from that. And I hope what you see through all of the regulations and their specific uh, things that they're committing to follow, that it all requires faith. I just, I want to hammer on that. Everything that they're committed to doing in obeying God's law required them faith. It required faith then, it requires faith now. And here's the deal. Faith by definition is not this just vague, wishful thinking. Like, oh, I'm just trusting everything's going to work out. That's not the faith of the Bible. That's just positive thinking. The faith of the Bible says, I am putting my trust into the living God who is active and present in my life and who is working to provide and working through his people to see his kingdom come and his will be done. That's a big deal. God's goal is to deepen our trust and to deepen the richness of our relationship with him. And that's why he wants us to forsake everything that would draw our hearts away from him. And it requires faith of us. Well, let's keep going. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, the decision to inhabit Jerusalem. It says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And so the rest of chapter 11 goes through the detailed account of, of um, those who lived in Jerusalem and, and the names of the outer villages surrounding Jerusalem. And then chapter 12, you start to get into the names of all the spiritual leaders and the priests and the Levites and all who came uh, from the, the waves of exile, starting with Zerubbabel up to Nehemiah and where they ended up settling. But here's the thing I want us to realize about these two verses that I think is profound. Jerusalem was not the desired place to live, okay? If you had your choice of what city you wanted to live in or what land you wanted to live in, no one would be chomping at the bit to live in Jerusalem. And here's why. Cities back in that day were the most dangerous places you could live because the leaders of any given people and the wealth of those people was stored in the city, So anytime a foreigner would come to try to invade or try to attack, they didn't care about the surrounding land. They were going after the gold. And so to live in the city meant, man, it's more susceptible that if attack comes, I'm going to be right in its way. It also meant that you had less real estate. It also meant you had less land. So you weren't, it wasn't as personally profitable to live in the cities. That's why they had to cast lots and say, okay, someone's got to take it for the team. One out of ten. Sorry, you got to live in the city. I hate the city. I don't know about you. It's okay, but I don't love the city and city life. It's the most dangerous place to live, and it was less personally profitable. And here's verse two. I love this. 
It says that they blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in the city. Did you catch that? So they're saying like, wow, like you guys truly, you're willingly going to live in the city. You are sacrificing. You are willingly giving of yourself for the good of our community. And I think this is such a beautiful Old Testament picture of Christ-likeness. Christ would come to this city to lay down his life so that we could be forgiven and set free. It's a picture of Christ. Those who willingly lived in a more dangerous and less profitable environment for the good of the community. That's self-sacrifice. That's the love of God on display. It'd be good for us to realize that following Jesus is a life of willful sacrifice for the good of others. Jesus, who laid down his own life and said in 1 Peter, to follow in my footsteps. Follow me. Live how I lived. Lay down your life for the good of others. All right, let's look at verses 27 and or 27 real quick and we'll look at how they started to to celebrate the dedication of the walls. 27. And at the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem they sought the Levites in their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, with harps and with lyres. The next other dozen verses or so go on to describe how the people broke off into two different groups. One was led by Ezra, one was led by Nehemiah. And these two groups circle the city, walking on top of the walls. And there's choirs, they're singing. It's like two full bands on the top of these walls, encompassing the city, fully surrounding the city. It was a public declaration that inside these walls, we are devoted to God. This is God's holy city set apart to his devotion, to his honor, and to his praise. And we are going to circle this place, praising him as a sign of that. And then in verse 43, it says, They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. This was a party. It's a celebration of God's faithfulness, a joyful dedication that was loud. The people in the surrounding land knew there's a party going on in Jerusalem. What is all the commotion? They're celebrating their God. I can't wait until we get the chance to do this in our new church home a few months from now where we'll have a dedication and a celebration service that God has provided for us as a church, a house in the center of our city to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be a beacon of light in our town. To shine for Christ. A place where we can gather to honor him and worship him and know him and make him known. And it's kind of funny, right? Because these walls that were once in shambles, now there's a multitude of people marching on top of them, singing praises to God. And if you know much of the story of our building, uh, we kind of purchased it while it was in shambles. (laughs) There's a lot of work. 
We had to reinforce the structure. We're getting a whole new roof. Basically, everything in this thing needs to be redone. But at the end of it, we're going to get to celebrate God's faithfulness to us. And we're going to say, hey, God, this is your place. This is for you. We're living for you. This is about you and your kingdom. We're going to get to declare that to our city. So they dedicate the walls. It's a party. It's a joyful celebration unto God. God fills them with joy. And then in chapter 12, it closes with their devotion to sustain the house of God. Verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions of first fruits and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all of Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. What we see here in this this text, I think, is a, a beautiful picture of a multitude of gifts working together. You see some managing the finances and the contributions. We have a financial advisory team here at the church. They manage the budget and the funds for us. You see uh, those who are facilitating worship, the priests and the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers. They all had different parts to play. In making sure God was put on display in worship for who he was. And what I can't help but notice in this passage, the clarity of God's design that every person in his household has a part to play. No one can say, oh, I I don't have any gifts, I don't have an ability, so I'm just going to sit on the sideline. That's not how the family of God operates. That's not how any family should operate. We're all called to figure out our role and to find our role and to faithfully serve in that role for the good of everyone else. That's why as a church, our mission, our purpose statement is following Jesus together. Because we realize that on our own, we can't faithfully obey the commands of scripture. Do you know that? You can't obey God's word by yourself. Because some of the commands have to do with loving other people. You can't say, well, I just avoid other people. And then I'm, you know, got that one covered. That's, that's not how it works. Think of it like a car. Okay. The most important parts of a car are not even visible. And then you pop the hood and you see, oh my gosh, here's the critical components that make this thing move. Here's the guts of this thing. The church is the same way. Guys, you don't see a lot that happens behind the scenes. You don't see those who come early to set up, to make coffee, to to greet, those who prepare to teach our children downstairs, those who throughout the week go and visit people who are sick or bring people a meal who've just had a child. There's so much of the church's life that isn't seen by everybody. And yet, wow, does that contribute to the health of a church? 
And wow, is Jesus put on display when we serve one another and play our part. And I'm just encouraged, honestly, as I look at our church body, I think we're doing this well. I'm hearing every week of ways people are loving and serving each other that I'm just blown away by how much I see Jesus working in our church body. And I couldn't be more grateful. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 puts it this way. He gave some to be apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints. That's every follower of Jesus for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God gave different leadership gifts for the purpose of equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. Did you catch that? It's not the paid professionals that are doing all the work of ministry. It's the saints. It's the body. That's everybody. So that should encourage you, church, that there is no insignificant role. And there is no part they can't say, I, I just, I have nothing to bring to the table. Yes, you do. God says you do. You're significant. Even the parts that seem insignificant, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, they're indispensable. The church isn't healthy without them. This is one reason uh, for us that we have church membership. One of the the logistics behind church membership is is our desire is that everyone who calls this church their family and, and, and they're a part of this church body knows how they can contribute to our health and our good and knows how they can use their unique gifts to play a part in the vibrant life of our body. And we have this membership covenant. And for some people, they get a little squirrely when you talk about membership and having covenants and all this kind of stuff. But here's the deal. Is everything in our church membership covenant is directly from God's word. So we as a church are not going to ask you to do anything that God hasn't already asked you to do. Okay? So if you've said, yep, I'm a follower of Jesus, that's what our church covenant says. It says, hey, this is what the Bible says. <laughs> should a follower of Jesus should look like. So all we're asking people who claim to be members and claim to be followers of Christ to do is, is to agree to God's word as our authority. Well, for the church today, I think it's so critical for us, especially in America in particular, to realize that Jesus in, is in the business of using ordinary people like you and I. Ordinary people like you and I who are committed to following him to build his church. Jesus is committed to that. We all have a part to play. And we all get to see God's house strengthened and advanced. As we are faithful to continue to follow him.